And we're live. Welcome to the virtual real estate investing podcast. My name's John Plumstead, and I am here with the one, the only, Frank Scapatici. How you doing, Frank? Doing very good. It's uh, it's also the first podcast uh, that we're doing, so big deal. I'm excited. Yes. Uh, so hopefully the first of many. We've done lots of live videos. We've done lots of uh, planned videos, but we said, hey, let's try a podcast. So with that being said, instead of talking about starting a podcast forever, let's start the podcast. Frank, tell me about Grayline Investments today. What is it? So today it's uh, it's a wholesaling and flipping company. Um, I think what differentiates us um, from other people that do what we do is probably that we do everything virtually. So uh, I live in New York. So do you. You live about 55 minutes north of where I do. Uh, I live just north of Manhattan. But all of our deals are in Texas, Georgia, Florida, um, Ohio for a short period of time, uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. So we're, we're all over the place in the United States. So that, that differentiates us. Um, and we do flips as well um, remotely and scale. I think uh, you know, what we found in 2020 was it wasn't that hard for us, I think, to do like two to four deals a month. We were kind of in that space for, I'd say, the spring. Um, but I think uh, what, what makes us different is the aggressiveness in which we scaled the company to, to getting a lot of leads in, get doing a lot of deals. So that's us in a nutshell. Remote, Excellent. a lot of volume. Uh, virtual real estate investing, as the title of the podcast uh, is, I think uh, you'll see we live up to it and we try our best to help others uh, be the best they can be at virtual real estate investing. So as you think about Grayline Investments today, what what does a company look like? How is it structured, Frank? Yeah, it's awesome. So as you're fully aware, me and you are the partners. So we're the owners of the company. Um, we have two awesome stateside employees Adam Parsons, who's our acquisitions manager, and Carlos San Diego, who manages contract to close, aka dispositions for for other companies that may call it that. Um, and uh, we've started to get more vertical um, underneath them. So on the acquisition side, I mean, acquisition is the lifeline of any wholesaling business and or flipping company. Really, um, need good deals. So we've staffed up there um, first, I would say, and more heavily. And we have an awesome team of lead specialists and lead associates. Um, we have, I'm not going to go through all the names because it'll take me a long time because we have such a big team, but we essentially have a team of cold callers, texters, and um, team members doing ringless voicemails. And in between them and Adam, we've elevated Diane, who essentially is screening some of the leads that the uh, lead specialists are getting and making sure that Adam is getting really good, really qualified leads that he can close when he comes into uh the office every single day. And then on um, the disposition side and contract to close, um, we have Carlo supported by Kia, who just messaged us and uh, is doing all the outbound marketing. So messaging out to the cash buyers list, managing, uh, putting the listings together. And uh, also Joycey, who kind of doubles as a, uh, we have one dual hatted, I would say, like very much dual hatted lead specialist. And uh, Joycey does some ops stuff. She uh, helps manage the title company, make sure that the walkthroughs are executed properly. And she also helps out on lead generation. So um, almost everyone in our lead specialist groups have a designated role with the exception of uh, Joycey, who has like three different hats that she wears. Gotcha. And, and what does uh, deal flow, deal volume look like these days, Frank? 
I mean, now coming into 2021, um, it was a little light with the holidays. I think last week we had just around 20 qualified leads. Um, but at the same time, we're kind of batting a really high average in terms of how many of those leads Adam is closing, which is like the numbers have changed a little bit from the previous quarter. So when I'm answering the question, I'm like, I got to give you the answer for now. And because this is a short sample, I got to give you the answer for the past, right? So right now it's kind of like we're getting 20 because we had a little 20 leads and we're converting like half of like, not half, but one every 10. So like that's turning into like two contracts. Um, but today we have two contracts signed just right now, um, just in this morning. So that's going really well. But I'd say historically when our SMS rates are back to normal and we're not in the holiday period, uh, we were bringing in right around 30 to 35 leads per week. Um, and that would generally result in two to three contracts. And that was kind of the norm for us in uh, Q3 and previous to the holidays. But I think where we want to go is to have the deal coming in almost every single day. So still a ways to go, but we're definitely getting qualified leads every week. Excellent. And I, I should go on to say, I'm asking Frank these questions. Uh, we're partners, so I could potentially be answering these questions. Um, which would be awkward, and it is kind of awkward for me to just be asking Frank these questions. <laughs> but we we think it'll uh, roll a little bit better. If I do the question uh, asking, and then and then Frank answers. Then maybe we'll switch seats uh, in another podcast. But let's go to the origin story, Frank. Right. So if that is where we are today, how to get started? Yeah, um, it was started by you, me, and uh, our buddy Justin. Uh, who was with the company for most of 2020. Um, and I can't remember who was the first person to shoot out the text, but one of us was like, hey, COVID's here. We got plenty of time um, in our schedule with no one commuting and all this uncertainty. Let's try to make the best of it. We all own real estate. Let's pool our resources together, add our hustle together, and let's buy some single family assets. Like, so It was kind of like a the preliminary Burr strategy, right? Like We're like, hey, let's just pull money together and we'll do some burrs, right? And our goal, I think at the time was, let's do 10 deals prior to uh, October, I think it was. So we had from February to October to do 10 deals. Um, I think we tried for like two weeks to go through agents and do things the old fashioned way. And we had no success. And we very quickly said, hey, let's just use the techniques wholesalers use. Let's use and use SMS. We started with SMS marketing as our primary means to lock up deals. We did that and we batted an insanely high average. We, I think we only had like 2,000 contacts. And I think we got like three deals out of that, which is good. It was pretty solid. And it was in like Lawton and Colleen. So one of the cities was really small. Um, so we got a little lucky. Uh, we locked up three deals. And then I think on the fourth deal, we were like, all right, we got to we, we didn't have, know how to raise private money yet. So naturally we said, let's start wholesaling. Um, then that was it. That's kind of how we were born. Then after we did four, four turned into seven. And then the next month we did a couple more. And then we were like, let's hire people, you know? Um, so I think right around, that took about 60 days, that entire cycle I just talked about. So it happened fast. And I think at that like 60 day mark, we said, it's time to scale the company. This is actually a real thing. So... Excellent. And uh, so those first two months, it was, well, when was the first month? We'll, we'll call it like March, 2020. So March, yeah. March and April, 
of 2020, things start firing off. And what was it that gave you the confidence to say, let's double down? Probably when like 50 grand came into the business banking account after those first couple of deals. I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing that's so addicting about wholesaling in general. At the very beginning, there's like no overhead. And you're also not fully aware of the challenges of scaling this business because it's not easy to scale. I, I do believe there are easier companies to scale than a wholesaling company. Um, but it is very easy to get the money at the beginning, in my opinion. So um, the confidence was probably the money. Um, coupled with the fact that I didn't really enjoy my primary job. So I was like, any awesome opportunity to work with my friends and, you know, replace my income, like was going to be incentivized, you know, I was going to feel good about that. And uh, because we had dumb luck, we probably didn't know any better, to be honest. I was like, oh, I could do 50 grand. <sighs> Must be easy to make a million bucks, you know? And and then you learn it's it, there's a lot more to it than what we were doing uh, over time. So what would we do with that, that first 50K? I think we reinvested it, uh, but do you remember how we kind of allocated it? Yeah, um, I'd say more than half of that 50k went towards education between the sales training we did. John Martinez sales training, Dan Schwartz's eighty twenty investor academy. I think was one of the first purchases we made, and that that's really all about scale. Um, that education program, which is perfect timing for where we were, because um, we were hustling our butts off doing all the outbound marketing ourselves, managing all the transactions ourselves, dispoing everything ourselves. So meeting Dan was really good at that point in time. And then the remainder we spent on bringing in people, right? So we wanted to make sure we had some reserves so that when we brought in Adam and Carlo, we we had we could pay them at the end of the month and we had some liquidity. So education, reserves for employees and liquidity was really where all that money went. So gotcha. And as as we started bringing people in, what what was the pitch to grow the team? How, how did we get team members on board, do you think? I think you had a uh, – because you reached out to Adam and Carlo first. So you might be the better answerer or provider of that answer. But I think uh, I think a big selling point was we think we have a process that we can scale. And we were just so excited. <laughs> like, like we were – so pumped to be able to do this. I feel like there's this trust that we're good people. I think we have good ethics. We all get along. And I think um, I think part of the draw is probably like, okay, this there's no guarantee this works, but it's got a fair shot. And this is a good group of people. So that's better than most companies. Let's get, let's give it a go. You know, there was definitely some uh, ready fire aim to what we did, but I don't know. That doesn't mean it was bad either. I think it was awesome to be honest. For sure. And then, uh, you talked about kind of how we had a little luck in the beginning. When was the first time you were like, this is hard? Um, yeah, I think, um, well, we, our spending got a little high, I'd say, in the summer. Um, when you start to convert a disproportionate or unrealistic number of leads in your first 60 to 90 days, there's a tendency to, let's just spend more on marketing, right? Let's spend more on this. You know, every dollar we put into marketing, we get $4 back. Just keep going, right? Um, so we started spending a lot on text, um, a lot with Facebook, PPC. And um, it probably would have been prudent to just get really, really good at outbound, right, at that point in time. But we felt like we needed to try PPC and all that stuff. So I think it, that's when it became hard because there was a month when we made a good amount of money 
And then you looked at you know the top line and the bottom line and you're like, all right, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? So that's when I was like, this is when scale becomes difficult, right? It's because you can't just look at dump more and more money into marketing, hire more people. Like the machine has to, it takes a little bit of time to grow. It doesn't grow overnight. And uh, we were so eager out the gate. I think that it's possible we made maybe wasted 10, 20, $30,000. But, um, you know, so that that's when I realized it was hard. Um, also like hiring and trying not to step on people's toes because you used to do that job. I mean, that's hard too, you know? Um, but luckily we got an awesome team. So I think at this point, we're, we're pretty much comfortable, you know, handing the keys over when it's appropriate. Nice. So if, if you had to sum up then, you know, it's, it's January, 2021 right now, sum up kind of March, 2020 until today, like how, how would you section off those different, you know, time periods for our, our business? Yeah. So, um, all right. This is, this is the, this is the life cycle in my opinion of, a really eager off-market wholesaler, uh, off-market dealer. So you start out, um, you have limited funds that you're willing to dedicate and you start hustling your butt off, right? And at this phase, it might take you 30 days, 60 days or 90 days. Eventually you'll lock up a deal and feel some success. Luckily for us, happened fast. Uh, but you're, you're kind of like just grinding and like sticking with it. And there's just a level of perseverance required. That's kind of like um, puberty, right? <laughs> if I'm like thinking of life cycle of the human. Then... If you succeed, which we did initially, we became teenagers, really aggressive, hyper aggressive, slightly arrogant, don't know everything, don't listen to the elder statesmen uh, out there. And then inevitably you get rocked down to earth to a certain extent. Although like we've we've been profitable, I think there was like a little bit of like a smack across our head in Q3 and Q4, like you don't know everything. Um, and then I think where we're at now is I think where... Uh, probably around the same age as we are as a business. Like we're like 30 years old. We kind of know what we're doing. Um, our relationships are getting stronger, but we know that there's a long way to go. Like we're not halfway there yet, you know? So that's, uh, I got kind of like crazy with the analogy there, but that's that's kind of how I see us right now. Gotcha. And <clears throat> let's let's dig in a little bit to the climb, right? Uh, mm-hmm. if, you, if you think of some of those periods where where we got knocked down, Right. Like how were you able to remain confident and then start climbing, climbing back up? I think um, when you feel like things are not going the way you want or chips are down, I think uh, that's the benefit of not being a solopreneur. You need, Like it's good to have a partner because doing this alone can be psychologically tough. I think any business, that's the case, um, especially if you have two sales orgs in your organization. Sales is inherently hard. If everyone's selling all the time and morale goes down, the business won't last, right? So I think if you're a solopreneur doing this um, and you ever feel down, just know that a partner might be partly the solution, depending on your personality, right? As long as it's a good good partner. But that's, that's one thing. I think uh, having you there, having Adam and Carlo there is really, really helpful. Um, and two, for me personally, uh, routine is what helps keep me together, Um like I, I, when I have two hours to think within a day and I wake up early and I give myself time to like relax, um, and have some like self-discipline in my day, I do really well. I'm super resilient. Um, there was a period after my second daughter was born where my routine, get, routine got thrown out the window because I was not sleeping. And like those times were tough, you know, and then 
as I've gotten more sleep over the last two months, I find myself gravitating towards my previous routine and it's just good for morale. So I think uh, having partnerships, friends in your business that you can trust, um, or maybe not your friends, but people you can trust and um, your own personal self-discipline like that. Now I think like if I had to start this company over in a cardboard box, like I would do it, you know, but um, it takes a while to get there psychologically. I like it. If you, if you look back at our first, um, you know, 10 months in business, we've been in business for 10 months, right? Uh, what are you most proud of? Or what are a few things that you're really proud of that we've accomplished? I think, um, I, uh, I think I like a couple of things. One, I, I think our culture is really good for a young, small company. Um, sounds cliche, but I, I really do mean that. So our core values are character, hustle, grit. And that's how we evaluate the members of our team. And I think the team we've landed on, because um, we have had significant turnover in our company over the last 10 months or 11 months. I think our 11th anniversary just passed. Um uh, is really, really good. Um, they say, some people say that you want your company to feel like a cult. And I, I wouldn't go that far um, with describing the our company. But I, I do think that there is this like shared belief system um, across our core team members that's really, really strong. So that, that's big. Um, the uh, second thing is like, I mean, we, we were able to maintain profitability while going through all these lessons and we did not stop playing offense. I uh, I, I have this belief that if you're an entrepreneur, if you have the opportunity to play offense, you should play it as much as you can. And this is what I mean by that. Um, going on a sales call to partner with another wholesaler or going on a sales call to talk to an institutional buyer, that's offense, right? Like you're on the hunt. You're you're looking for ways to increase the revenue in your business. It's good for the soul. This is good for it too. Like going on a podcast, doing marketing, it's good for the soul, right? And I think we've done a good job of focusing on those things. For me, going into QuickBooks and analyzing our taxes and categorizing stuff, that's defense for me, right? So, but we found a good CPA, Larry Dixon. That's his offense, right? So like my thought is I want everyone in my ecosystem playing offense as much as possible all the time, you know? And I was telling my wife that too, like personally, like want to book a trip, book the trip, you know? <laughs> like I don't care about COVID. I mean, I do. We'll take the precautions when we get there, but like let's not let us get in the way, you know? Yeah, I, I like that. I, as they say in the podcast world, I'd like to unpack that. A okay. Bit, right. All right. Uh, so let's let's talk about culture, right? Um, I think some people may have a visceral reaction to the idea that we are eleven months old talking about culture, right? Like, yeah, you guys, you guys are still babies. Don't talk to me about culture. Um, so why, why is it that you do think we have a strong culture and, and you'd refute that? I, um, well, one is we have good, we have enough touch points where I think we can see our teammates, but two, it's, I think in wholesaling in particular, I think bad character will get exposed extremely quickly. Um, because there's opportunities to act with bad ethics almost at every single point within a transaction, right? Are you being transparent with sellers on what the process looks like? Are they aware that you're going to have walkthroughs and, and people are going to look at the house, right? Are they aware that you're taking a fee and you're making money as an investor? People try to hide the sausage on the front end. Eventually it comes exposed, right? You get closer to the closing table. 
seller has a complaint. Wait, this isn't what you told me you were doing, right? And that's because you didn't have the fortitude to tell them exactly how it's going to go or set expectations at the beginning. Furthermore, furthermore, on the buying end, I, I've tried the JV deals with people, uh, other wholesalers, and they'll show their cards like on their on their ethics, like right there, right? Like they'll try to not be honest with how much their fee is and all this other stuff. What, I, what I'm getting is this. In our business and wholesaling and flipping, it's we're all grabbing equity, right? A home has a value and we're all trying to get a fair amount for our work, right? Of the equity in that house throughout the transaction. You get too greedy, you stop providing value or you're dishonest with people, like it will eventually bubble up. But the owner will find out. If Carla was was driving prices up by saying, oh, I got another offer higher than yours. Can you give me an extra three grand? If Carlo did that in perpetuity, we would eventually find out he was improperly bidding up our buyers, right? And they would find out too. Like, but so if you don't have good character, especially in this business, because the cash can move pretty quickly, it'll show itself. So I'm very confident we don't have that issue. Nice. And then like we don't, um, but now we've got, a company with double digit personnel spread out literally across the globe, right? Our lead specialists or virtual assistants are located in other countries. Do they embody our culture? Do they embody our values? And if so, how? I think they do. Um, we just had uh, Kia come on the uh, your session yesterday and go live. And um, I think if you listen to her speak, and you said, hey, their company values are character, hustle, grit. And you watch Kia talk, you'd be like, yeah, like she, she's a believer. Um, and I think that's that I watched it, obviously. And I thought that was really, really apparent. Um, and uh, like jo- especially Joycey and Diane, who've been with us for over six months. Those are our three uh, initial virtual assistant hires. We don't call them VAs in our business. We call them lead specialists and associates uh, for those watching. Um, but uh I don't, I don't know. It's uh, how do you, how do you personify character, hustle, grit? We, we say characters do the right thing, treat people with respect, which I've always seen them do. Um, extremely supportive. Like, like we we know when Diane got married, like the other virtual assistants are involved. They're congratulating her. Like there's a little bit of like a boost there, but then on the hustle and grit side, like they're calling, they're doing outbound marketing every single day and they're delivering leads every single day. Doing that for 40 hours a week is the definition of hustle, right? And grit to do it over two quarters. It's not easy work, right? But to come in, do that work, deliver on your job, and then show up to your two meetings a week with John and Frank with a smile on your face and like trying to add value in other areas of the business, like, you know, I don't need to be convinced that they have it. You know, if you, if you start seeing those behaviors, like they're executing the daily hustle and then they're like giving recommendations to the boss, the owner of the company, like, dude, that's, that's a winner, you know? I like it. Um, Let's let's talk about turnover a little bit, right? And we don't have to get into it too deep. Mm-hmm. But I think if you would have told me 11 months ago that we were going to turn over as many people as we have, I would have said no way, right? Yeah. Uh, because if we have a good culture, shouldn't it keep people here, right? So can you talk a little bit about turnover and how we've determined what is a good fit and what isn't a good fit? Yeah. Um, I think you start with grading people on your company values Um, from just an HR personal management perspective. I think traction, the book does a great job describing this, right? So 
when you're either going to decide to move on from someone, if you decide you have the wrong person or you have the right person in the wrong seat and that seat in your business doesn't exist, right? Those are the, probably the two reasons you get rid of someone. The wrong fit means they don't align with your values, which we've had, right? Um, and sometimes you can interview for that and sometimes you just don't find out, right? I, the only thing I can say about that is when you do find out that the person's just not going to be a fit in your organization, especially if you're a small company, you should be decisive, right? So what we tell people when um, they join our company is we typically have a 30-day trial period to make sure this is a fit for both parties. We appreciate this is a young company. If they don't like us, we don't want them to be stuck with us either, right? We're, we're so young. You know, we're not Google, right? We don't offer the same type of benefits package they do. So if they want to leave, like that's actually very fair. Um, so offering a trial period um, is one way that we, we manage that as a small company. Um, and then like right person, wrong seat, like to me, that's just a future business partner. But um, to answer your question on turnover, that's how I look at it. Do they align to our company values? If not, wrong person. If uh, they are the right person, do we have the right seat? If they're a great salesperson, but we need a transaction coordinator, that that's probably a future business partner, you know? Um, and eventually after 30 days, you, you should probably be able to figure out what makes that person tick. Gotcha. What, what about one, one of the strategies we've tried, sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully, is creating the seats in our business based on the team we had, not creating the seats based on the the business that we had. So what are your thoughts on making sure that we have the right positions and the right structure for success today and then success long-term? How do you think about that? Well, I I think that you got to be a little careful. we have, I know we have thoughts about what the future of the company can look like and what roles there might be in there. Like we want to start an education arm of our business. We have a mastermind. We eventually want to scale it to have a, uh, like a higher margin, higher end course where we add a lot of value um, for lead generation, people trying to generate leads because we're good at it. Um, and you could argue that like, hey, that'll require role A, like a different role for the company, you know? And like, maybe that's in the back of our heads, but like let's hustle that and then we'll scale. You know, I don't like it when people try to scale things that haven't been hustled at all. Right. Like right now, the most important thing in our company is the people in it right now. And the thank I really believe we have people in the right seats. Right. And then as business owners, we'll do some business development for the new revenue streams. And then we'll kind of scale underneath that, right. That effort. Um, so like how much time am I thinking about, Oh, who's the primary person to lead this, you know, other initiative. And, and honestly, that's me and you while managing the current team, which we think is the right team. And then once we get a little bit of revenue in that door, we'll, we'll scale it appropriately. So I'm not spending honestly a ton of time thinking about that next person. Gotcha. Um, profitability, money flow, um, making sure uh, that we're liquid, right? Liquidity. What lessons have we learned about, Profitability, revenue, expenses, bookkeeping, uh, QuickBooks, CPA. I could go on and on, right? Like we've learned a lot, but what are some of the big things that stand out to you? Liquidity, I'll touch that first. Um, you never can have enough cash in your bank account. A um, couple of reasons. Uh, one, in wholesaling and off-market dealing, marketing channels will fluctuate with their effectiveness, right? Two years ago, if you got on the PPC 
um, Google ads, Facebook ads, YouTube ads train, the cost was much lower to get a lead than it is now, right? So that's changed a lot. Um, we use SMS as a primary marketing platform in our company. Delivery rates on carriers or to certain carriers or just on the vendor you're using itself are very prone to fluctuation. If that fluctuation works against you, your leads could go from 50 or 100 per month to 20, right? You could get legitimately a 50% or more reduction depending on how your channels are operating or, or working. So let's, let's say you make $0 that month. Let, let's say you're in a crash course because um, you made zero bucks. Like how many months can you survive? Um, and now my mindset is we need three months of operating expenses covered in the bank account. And then we could talk about quarterly bonuses and special projects and all this other stuff. Because once you have employees, you have a responsibility to you know, if you have to weather a storm, you can weather that storm. And I think in wholesaling, three months can do that for you, probably more if you can. Um, but we just to, to give a real example of that we um, we were sitting pretty cash heavy in August and uh, we had the opportunity to do our first loan. We're like, yeah, let's, let's it's not that much money. It was it was a cheap house and a really good borrower. And we're like, yo, let's let's lend it out, you know, and um, then just exactly what I said happened. Our, some of our marketing platforms took that dip and we were fine, but there was definitely like a two month period where I was like, I really wish we didn't lend out that money, you know? Um, and that's just the stress that you don't want as a business owner. Cause um, being lighter on cash, I think inhibits your decision-making. You're less likely to take risk. You're more likely to play defense, which I alluded to before. And I don't think a young company should be playing a lot of defense. I think you should be able to be aggressive. Yeah. The old cash is King sounds so cliche, but, Oh my goodness, right? Cash is is king. Uh, let's talk about scale some. And uh, one, I think we're, we look at scale differently than a lot. Um, the other thing is there's so many people that would say, you know, hey, doing a deal a month is awesome. Doing, you know, 12 deals in a year is awesome. But for some reason, you know, in the second or in 2020, we did 50 deals, right? And we're hoping to get to the point where we do a deal a day. So can you talk to me about scale some? Yeah. And just to uh, make a point, if someone's goal is to do a deal a day, there's nothing wrong, or it should be a deal a month. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're earning a W2 income and you're making a 10K fee a month on the side, hey, you know, you're going to, you can live totally fine. You can become very wealthy that way. So that's great. Um, but how I look at scale is, um, I just, not only, obviously you make more money, right? I think like that is like the most immediate motivator is like our upside is going to be a lot higher. Right. But to me, it was also a much more sustainable path, right? When you scale people that are in the hustle, their roles become more defined, right? As the business owner gives you opportunity to look for other avenues of approach, so for people like you and me that have the shiny object syndrome, scale is like an inevitable thing. You're either going to do it or you're going to get distracted, right? Um, so, and and to be honest, like Carlo and Adam had to replace our hustle for a certain amount of time as we were scaling, right? And they had to like, Adam was closing the deal. He was cold calling. He was doing everything. And that's too much too, right? So scale is not only a revenue driver, but I think it's a sustainability thing. There's a lot of people that wholesale for six months and make 60 grand and still tap out right? Or a year or two years. Because if you're always the one on the phone forever and you have to carry the weight of the CPA, right? 
like both sides, both front offices, as things continue to grow, it's, a, it's just very, very stressful. Um, so I, uh, I think it's also a sustainability thing. Um, and I'm glad we did it because if I would have given a different answer 10 months ago, I would have just said more money, you know, um, more options that you have, but there's definitely, it definitely makes everyone's quality of life go up as well, in my opinion. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, let's see. What do you think makes us different? Like we talked about scale some, but what other things do you think make us different in this marketplace? Um, I don't know. I, th- I think like, I don't want to give the character and like the soft answer because we've covered that already. But um, although I do think that's a differentiator, us being honest on both sides of our business. Um, but I don't know if we're doing anything super different, right? I think we're hitting the same lists that a lot of people are. We're not the only wholesaler in any of the cities we're in. Like there's, we have competition. Um, we use the 70% minus rehab rule and how we underwrite our houses, which half the wholesalers out there use, right? So we underwrite very similar to people. I think what the, to differentiate yourself in this type of business is you got to be extremely nitpicky and process improvement oriented on all the different components of the business. And it's the, the hard thing to scale about wholesaling is every single step, like all 50 steps in the process do have an influence over either your throughput or the margins or the revenue make per deal, right? Like if you qualify sellers and you say, um, hey, we're going to be very upfront with you. Are you willing to sell your house at less than the Zillow or the Zestimate, right? You're going to have less qualified leads hit your acquisition manager, but he might bat a higher average or he or she might bat bat a higher average. That's one example or one step out of like 75 steps that you kind of need to iterate to scale the business and make more money. So I think what separates us is like, we do the same thing everyone else is doing, but we do it harder and with more of a magnifying glass, I think, in the, at least in the 12 year, 12 month period that we've been doing it. I think there's definitely people that are doing it at a super high level and we're on that trajectory, but um, that's, I guess that's grit, right? That's the company value that I'm kind of embodying right now by saying that, but yeah, it's, we're improving everything, you know, like all the time. How have you been able to wrap your head around that delegation piece? Because we have those those 50 different steps we need to have happen to close a deal. And I think that's where a lot of people get bogged down when it comes to scale is losing control and delegating is really hard for them. So how have we been able to overcome that potentially? Well, I think um, in terms of a delegation step, I think um, <clears throat> I used to think like procedures. We used to have SOPs in our company and we still do. They're on our drive. But what... Uh, at least in our experience, no one reads them, right? So um, a lot of effort put into there. Um, and I don't know how much value we got, but giving people checklists and objectives for whatever call they have to make or whatever task they have to complete is really powerful. So if, for example, um, when, when Carlo calls a cash buyer that's interested in the property and maybe they just left the walkthrough, it's like, obviously, objective number, number one, build rapport. If you don't know the person, like be a good person. But objective number two is what is the number, Right. Like, don't let the cash buyer off the phone without saying, even if they don't want to buy it, like, hey, why not? What what price would you buy it? You need something, right? So that's his objective, right? Get the number, even if it's not the number you want. Um, and uh, like giving people checklists and objectives is super powerful. And it's way shorter and easier to make than an SOP. Um, 
And then on the delegation side, I've gotten better about this, but just not trying to be perfect. Like perfection is the enemy of greatness. Like, like there, there's things that I've delegated to Carlo and he brings it up and I'm like, damn, I never even thought of that, you know, but like I could get upset about it. But then I also should be thinking, damn, Carlo, I didn't give him that guidance and he still got the deal done. You know, like that's a good thing. I shouldn't be fretting about that. I should feel good about it. So, and Carlo feels good too. He's like, oh, my idiot boss didn't know that, but now, but now I'm doing it. Like I should be the boss, which maybe you should, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like just don't, don't let that stuff bother you. Um, and don't try to make your process too perfect. I like it. Uh, I, I feel like I'm doing the interviewing and although it's been very informative, maybe I'm asking some boring questions. So I want to go a little bit of a right turn. And okay. I think, I think you'll appreciate this because you love, you love a good crazy story, right? Sure. Uh, but uh, do you have a crazy story that's happened in 11 months uh, that you'd like to share? I, I can think of a couple different ones, but do you have one uh, that comes to mind? Well, what, which one are you thinking about? You seem more prepared um, for this than I am. I don't know if I'm more prepared. Uh, you might be a better storyteller. I'm thinking the the initial one, Justin dealt with the property manager that clearly was constantly under the influence and was trying to like shake us down for $20 a pop to do showings and stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So no, I actually ended up having to speak to him too. Um, he, this property man, this poor seller, man, this actually makes me sad. So we, um, we were under contract for a house in Coppers Cove, Texas. And I think we were under contract for like 120 and the ARV was like 210 or something. And the seller was like, Hey, it doesn't need that much work. Um, like maybe five, 10 grand worth of work. It was a nice house. And we're like, okay, cool. Let's lock it up at this price, but we'll do a walkthrough to verify the condition. And the property manager has to let us in. Now this property manager definitely hasn't been in this house in 10 years. Like definitely was not checking up in the house or managing anything besides transferring funds to the owner. And this house was wrecked. Like the tenants stole the sink out of the walls and all the bathroom smelled bad dogs had ripped up it was really really bad and there was foundation issues that he the owner was never alerted to so like what a 10 it, it was a 10k rehab that was really a 60 grand plus rehab it was a lot and uh this property manager obviously gets yelled at by the owner because he's cost this owner a lot of money we have to renegotiate the offer because we couldn't buy the house at that price anymore um but we still were the best op- option for that seller and then the property manager had the gall to be like hey if you want to have anyone contractors, buyers look at this property. Like you got to throw me like 200 bucks uh, per walkthrough. And I was like, and we were brand new. And I was like, man, like this is like one of the two deals we have in the pipeline. Cause we were, you know, we had no deal flow at that point or very limited. And I, I agreed, but and it, I couldn't understand him. He was, he was a ridiculous guy, but then he never collected the money. I think he ran up a tab of like $600 to like get let us in the house. And then he texted me like, Hey, are you going to send the money? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll send it over. I've never heard from him again. So um, yeah, that was my sketchy property management story. He was, he was rough. Nice. You should also uh, tell the story uh, without saying the address because this, there's so many uh, dangerous angles to this, but the story of how with the same house, we kind of had to deal with uh, the drug cartel and very shady other wholesalers um, do you remember the, the spaghetti tangle? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's probably the worst. I had to get involved heavily in this one. So we had, uh, we had a home, um, 
and we're under contract for a long time. There was multiple people on the deed, like I think two ex-husbands and obviously the, the wife. And it took us a month to get the first husband. Then we focused on the second one. The second husband was uh, out of the country. He was basically um, ex- extradited, I guess, to Mexico on – he was in the cartel, drug charges <laughs> and everything. And uh, they couldn't get in touch with them, didn't know where he was. We only had the lawyer's contact info, and they couldn't get in touch with the, the owner. We finally – this takes two months. We finally – get the signature because we were like, listen, if we don't get it this month or this week, we're going to, we're going to cancel the contract. Can't do this anymore. It was ridiculous. We are two days before closing. Um, after getting all this work done, title company worked their butts off on this and it's like crickets can't find the seller, right? The final signature, the person who's actually working with us the whole time. Um, we eventually find out I through the grapevine that another wholesaler locked up the property while all this was going on at a, uh, with more earnest money, but like the same price. And I called the other wholesaler and, uh, I was like, Hey, let's just make this work, man. I don't want to do this anymore. I'll let you into my fee for a little bit, or let's split the fee. Whoever's got the bigger one. And, uh, let's do that. And we had the senior contract, but I just didn't want to deal with this anymore. You know, and I'll end the, and we wanted to keep our buyer at their price. That was the, that was the deal. And the guy completely reneged on the deal uh, at the last minute and essentially like coerced the deal out of our hands. We would have had to sue the seller for performance, um, which we didn't really want to do because for other reasons. And uh, I found out later actually this week that they also screwed our buyer when we terminated the contract. So he said he was going to honor that original contract and I found out he did not. So I'm actually a little butthurt about that one. That was not cool. Gotcha. A uh, few more questions and, th- and then we'll wrap it up. One is, uh, uh, at least from the outside looking in, you had a potentially cush job in New York, uh, in, in Manhattan. I would imagine it, it paid you uh, a nice salary. You probably could have uh, ridden that to the end of time and continued to do real estate uh, as a side hustle. But you made the decision to quit your job and do this full time. Can you talk about why you did that, how you did that, what it felt like to do that. I imagine there's a lot of people listening that are hoping to grow real estate to a point where they can quit their job. And I'd love uh, you to explain some of that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of reasons. I think um, I I definitely didn't feel like I was personally growing as much as I wanted to be in my full-time job. I, I, I don't know. I just, there, there was, there's like a level of like being out on the edge that like in front of your company and like being the number one cheerleader for your company and being an entrepreneur that I, I think is always like gnawing at me in the back of my head. Like, man, like if I could just go on my own and do this, like I, it would be more fulfilling. Um, and then like, I just had a boss that I just thought she was not great. You know, like I had, I had a typical guy didn't like my boss at all. I thought she was um, to be blunt, low character. Right. And, uh, that, that eventually weighs on you. So I was like, well, I'm either going to, if on this trajectory, I'm either going to go find another W2 job in uh, the financial services industry, um, or I'm going to do my own thing. Right. And that, that was already in my head. Then when we had the conversation, Hey, let's side hustle. And then it turned into something kind of real. I started seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And, um, then when we started having forming a culture and like having like our internal policies and it started to like work and proliferate, that was just more encouraging. Um, then after, 
I'd say about four or five months, I uh, I decided like if as long as this thing doesn't explode and this thing keeps working, um, I don't want to risk what we built because I'm distracted with something I don't like. Even if I'm going to lose some money in the first couple of months of not being employed by that W two job, right? Like I, I haven't fully replaced my income. I had a good income, right? Um, but I believe we will, and like I don't want to. Um, as our old coach in football would say, don't sacrifice the steak for the hot dog. You know, my old job was the hot dog. I'm like, this is the steak, you know? <laughs> so that's how I look at it. Excellent. Uh, well, let's go ahead and wrap it up, Frank. Do you have any uh, final words for the inaugural, the first ever virtual real estate investing podcast brought to you by Grayline Investments? Any final words? No, man. I uh, I think um, if anyone's listening, I think uh, I hope they heard my story and feel encouraged um, because our story, I think, is a very real option for anyone that has a W-2 job or has a little bit of time on their hands um, that it can be done, right? You can scale in 10 months. It's possible, but it's not easy. So any guru that's telling you it's they can outsource the marketing for you and get it all done, blah, blah, blah. Everything can be done, PPC, limited hustle. It's not true, right? It's. I think this is very much a business that's, um, there's a lot of shortcuts being sold out there, but if you really want to do it the right way, you got to build a strong foundation and hustle your butt off, but it's doable. I, I like it. We've often talked about how uh, uh, maybe we were, uh, we were allured into real estate thinking that we could make riches faster than you could in, in other areas. And, and maybe you can. Uh, but the bottom line is we work really hard. We get punched in the face constantly and we're having success. Uh, and I, I love real estate, um, but but I think the uh, tenacity it takes to be successful uh, is a lot greater than most people would lead on. And and the amount of failures we have too, right? Like we, uh, uh, we did 50 deals last year, um, but we tried to do 100 deals and 50 of them fell through, some of them in very emotional ways. Um, yeah. but- we said in Q4, we're going to do, or Q3, a deal a day, every day. You know, we didn't hit that goal. That That's, we were in the teenage years, right? We thought we knew everything. Didn't happen, you know, but we're still, we're still trying to get there. Excellent. All right. Great final words. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. The first uh, virtual real estate investing podcast is now in the books. Thank you 